<laughs> Sorry, I'm. Uh, I've got my at at Lego. Oh, cool guy, and he's got a broken foot though, so I'm I'm trying to fix it. Oh. It's really been bugging me while I've been looking at it. I'm thinking about bringing the collection in, and I I need something to personalize my office. It's still very, very sparse. I'm thinking about bringing my whole Star Wars Lego set in, set up a mock battle, and you know, like <laughs> people come in to like ask me an important question. I'm sitting here, I'm like, see, 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 AC, ACS Air War College. This guy trying to dole out battle strategies in his office. <laughs> oh, that would be great. So I'm very busy right now. <laughs> I can see Greg like turning to his phone, like just putting it on. Hold all my calls. <laughs> the views and opinions of authors expressed herein do not necessarily state or reflect those of the United States government and shall not be used for advertising or product endorsement purposes. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the C41A podcast. Joining me today are... I'm Manoj Rima, and my favorite ice cream flavor is cardamom pear from the Lick Shop in San Antonio. I'm Christopher Foote, and my favorite ice cream flavor is... <laughs> you don't even want to say it? <laughs> I don't know why I couldn't get through that. Uh, I'm Christopher Foote, and my favorite ice cream flavor is... me. <laughs> What is wrong with you? Are you just already thinking of what Greg's going to come back with? I literally am. All right. I got the giggles. I'm Christopher Foote, and my favorite ice cream flavor is mint chocolate chip. Once again, I'm Greg Taylor, and my favorite ice cream flavor is pistachio. Very nice. Now, the cardamom pear, is that like $7 a scoop? I feel like it's fancy. No, so if you don't know, there is a Lick Honest Ice Cream Shop in San Antonio at the Pearl. If you ever go down there, TDY again to our fellow listeners, hit up the shop. It's absolutely amazing. If I want to get efficient and brush my teeth and eat ice cream at the same time, I'll go with mint chocolate chip. There it is. There it is. Thank you. I, I was I was going to be offended if you didn't try to at least get a jab on my on my on my pick. It's a good pick. I I like mint chocolate chip as well i wish i could say i knew anything about Minoja's pick but i definitely like pistachio as well that's a great pick probably in my top five well hey you know we didn't come here just to talk about ice cream even though kind of make me want ice cream now so thanks for that anyway all right so we're here to talk about a book off of one of the recent bluff newsletters from our core office and in the learning list for 2023, uh, one of the books that was on there was called The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. And we're here to talk a little bit about that and see how maybe lessons from that can be applied to what we do as Medical Service Corps officers. So I'll just start with a little summary of the book. So The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel examines personal finance through the lens of human behavior. It's a fresh take on a well-trod subject. Many personal finance books focus on external considerations like how the stock market works, how to select stocks, or how to build a portfolio, how to time the market. And Housel's focus is on the relationship between people and money. 
with particular emphasis on the human variable of the equation. To grasp why people buried themselves in debt, you don't need to study interest rates, you need to study the history of greed, insecurity, and optimism. Housel's conviction is that behavior trumps other considerations in the pursuit of financial success. Doing well with money has little to do with how smart you are and a lot to do with how you behave. Engage in the right behaviors and you're likely to succeed. Similarly, no amount of intelligence, savvy, or inside information will save you from the wrong set of behaviors. So there's uh, 18 chapters to this book. Each one of them is, is, is short and sweet and really can be taken on its own. I don't think you need to read it from start to finish in, in order, in order to glean the lessons from each chapter. And I, I also thought it was interesting that this book stemmed from the magazine articles that he wrote and and then expanded on each of the articles had different financial lessons in them and he expanded on that into the book uh, and created the book as kind of like a compendium of all those lessons so that was pretty nice you know it was easy to to jump around and pick up a nugget here and there and you didn't have to try to like follow a stream of thought all the way from page one to page 200 chris what were your takeaways from the book I thought it was a great book. Uh, five out of five for me, really. I love books about personal finance to begin with. And I really thought this book took a very unique approach to personal finance. I think after you read enough of these books, you hear the same things over and over. It's the same lessons, just maybe made in a slightly different way. But I think the author here did a really just a wonderful job applying those lessons in a very new light. And so I, I really appreciate it. And I think a lot of these lessons also are very portable outside of personal finance. So I, I just overall just enjoyed the book. It was an easy read. It was a it was a pretty quick read. Just enjoyed the the new fresh approach to personal finance. How about you, Manoj? Yeah, I definitely agree. I was going to piggyback uh, something you said. You can definitely translate a lot of stuff that he talks about, specifically about money to other things when it comes to like life and career. At least that's what I was trying to do. Uh, for most of it. Like you said, easy read, but for me, easy read is very different than your easy read. But I got through it and it was it was enjoyable. And like Greg said, each chapter is kind of stands on its own. I will bring up like the first point. So when I said earlier about taking some of the examples, he talked about money and kind of trying to find the correlation to my career or our careers. I try to look for those the similarities to see where I, he could, when he talked about some of the money things, how could I use it in our in our everyday Air Force career. So I know one of the things he talks about is, you know, the difference between getting wealthy and staying wealthy and two very different things. And it might not be something you think about every day. It's like, yeah, if I get wealthy, yes, I'm wealthy now. But no, that's not necessarily the case. You have to do things to stay wealthy. Or So it's like good investing is not necessarily about making good decisions. It's about consistently not screwing up. So I thought about that in my career, my eight-year career, and just going, okay, yeah, I've try to do things consistently throughout my career, regardless of the job that I'm in and try to do the same thing, the same game plan, the same type of leadership, be open to people, uh, have some humility. And and so if I screw up here and there, and this, I'm going into another point, he talks about having room for error. If you screw up here and there, at least it's not going to make a huge dent in what you may think is your career and promoting uh, in the future. So just because you have small failures here and there doesn't mean you're you're not going to go places and be successful. So making those good decisions consistently and just 
not consistently screwing up and having that room to error when you do screw up so it doesn't feel like you're at a complete loss. Manoj, I think you really hit on the main lesson from the book, right? And it kind of goes back to a book we read over a year ago, Atomic Habits by James Clear. And it's really just about doing the right thing, as small as that right thing might be, consistently over time. And if you fall off the horse or or you uh, break that streak, you know, getting back on it as soon as possible and, and getting right back to it, you know, and those incremental gains over time is going to pay a lot more dividends for you, whether that's literal dividends in investments or figuratively in positive behavior, having effects on your personal life, your career, whatever it may be. Yeah. And sometimes it's hard to feel or see those small incremental gains. And I think it talks about that. One of the chapters, like you may feel when you lose, it feels harder. It feels worse. You feel like you're at a low point and everything is going wrong for you. But then you didn't really see the small gains that did happen throughout that same time span that could counter what bad thing may have happened. And I definitely don't do a good job paying attention to those small gains, that small wins that I might have throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout the month or the quarter. I just think they're everyday things that I'm just doing, but essentially they are wins and they make me a little better each and every day. And it's something my commander definitely says to the group every morning. His, his motto is pretty much elevate your game and be a good human. So every day so he motivates us to elevate your game just a little bit. It doesn't have to be huge, like big gains, be small gains. Like, hey, you help pick up trash around base today. That's still a small thing that you don't think maybe made a huge difference, but it does. So trying to look out and make sure I notice those little gains and not just focus on the big losses that I may have. Yeah, Greg, I like how you tied that back to Atomic Habits. Uh, so for our listeners, if you, if you haven't listened uh, to episode two, episode two, we have a much more in-depth conversation about Atomic Habits, but I do like the relationship there between Atomic Habits and here, uh, like you were saying, Manoj, that you know just a little bit better every day. And I think it was Atomic Habits where you're saying 1% better every day. And right, I think you can definitely relate that to compounding interest and whether that compounding is either actually with money, right? Or just with our own skill set over time, it may not feel like we're making huge deposits, but eventually we'll we'll start to see that exponential growth. And, you know, like he makes the explanation in the book where he talks about Warren Buffett, really, I think he said like, you know, $80 billion of Warren Buffett's wealth was made by the time he was in the age where he qualified for social security. Right. And so to think that, you know, most of what we do, you know, in, in terms of our skill set, we'll probably see the largest growth in our skill set and our abilities probably l- towards later in our career, so long as we're making um, those deposits earlier in our career. I don't know if that's a, a perfect analogy, but uh, it seems like it works. And it seems like that's somewhat been some of my experience as well. Yeah. Well, that's the the lesson of compounding interest, right? Is the first 20 years of compounding interest is frustratingly slow but you you have to do the first 20 to reap the benefits of the second 20 where the gains really start to to pay off when it comes to you know personal finance but in in the young years when we're at i think you know like our competitive and our career edge is the sharpest you know you don't see those dividends and and i think that translates somewhat to our career as MSC officers. I think building good habits as a CGO, 
right, will make you a highly effective FGO or or maybe also, you know, taking more risk as a CGO and experiencing things and actually getting your hands dirty doing stuff and not taking the safe route or relying just on the things you're already good at, you know, builds that well-roundedness that when you're an FGO and you get thrown into into unfamiliar circumstances with vague commander's intent and not enough resources, you know, you lack the flexibility then to deal with those problems. Maybe, I don't know, I, that's not a perfect analogy, but that is something that comes to mind. Well, he, he also mentioned, you know, being okay with a lot of things going wrong. So that goes back to that room, room for error thing. You know, you have to make sure, you have to take those risks and you might you know, lose on, let's say, 10 things of investing and, you know, eight of those things don't make money. But if two of those things really do hit, then, you know, you're, you're going to be in a good spot. But you have to have that room for error and, and being okay with things going wrong. It sounds bad when eight out of 10 things go wrong. But if two things out of those 10 things go right and they go right really well, you're overall in the positive. Yeah. Have you ever heard like a younger officer ask the question like, how do I become a colonel or how do I become a commander? or an SGA or whatever. The reason I, I bring that up is just one of the lessons from this book is in chapter nine, it's called uh, Wealth is What You Don't See. And there, what the author is talking about from a finance standpoint, right, is I think what a lot of people perceive wealth to be is a flashy car, a big house, you know, private school education, things like that, which, you know, people who are wealthy can afford those things, right? But, you know, spending money isn't being wealthy, you know, that's being rich, you know, there's a difference between wealthy and rich, right? Wealth generally is hidden. Wealth is money that isn't spent, that's saved, right? That's earning interest or appreciating in, in some way or another. I think, you know, when people really ask those questions of senior leaders, like, how do I become you? What they're looking at is they're looking at the rank, they're looking at the authority, associated with that position and they don't want to hear like sometimes the really generic answers that come back to you right which is like oh well just do good at the job that you have now or you know make sure you get your pme done on time or work well with others I'm like oh no i want like a magic bullet i want that you know like surefire thing that's going to get me acse in residence so that i can get below the zone to Lieutenant Colonel, even though it's not a thing anymore, you know, then I'm going to go to squadron command and then I'm going to be at this. And I don't know, they get, you get fixated, I think on that flashy car or that flashy ring and less willing to just do the, the grind of having good behaviors that, you know, push the ball forward incrementally with every step. You guys agree? Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that as well, because you know, like what he's saying in the book and I think he made the example a few times when it comes to money, a lot of times like we'll, we will try to do the thing that we are quote unquote supposed to do the thing that, you know, everybody says, this is how you're supposed to do it. And I think the example, one of the examples that he gives in the book was paying off his mortgage early and just making like one large lump sum payment, you know, probably a couple hundred thousand dollars or something to that effect. But generally, that would be frowned upon because that money then could be used for something else to make, because he had, I think, a very low interest rate at the time. So I think that would, would have been frowned upon because he could have made more money with the money he used. But for him, it was more about 
what that meant for him and for his situation and for what what his financial goals were. And so I think, you know, Greg, like where you're translating that to our careers, I think having that success in our careers is is really also dependent on how we define what that looks like for us as individuals. And so even if you have those long-term goals, it's also about how am I succeeding? So like what you're saying, do well in the job that you do right now. Well, you're certainly not going to get to that next job if you're not succeeding in the job that you are right now. So, you know, defining success in the near term will then help build and compound into the more long-term success. I really liked that that lesson. Certainly a, a personal reminder for me because, you know, something, you know, whether it's money or it's my career or it's my golf game, right? I'm thinking about the 20, you know, I'm I'm thinking way out and I'm I'm looking so far ahead that I'm not focused on the swing that I need to do right now to get the ball down and hopefully get par, which I never do. So that's still a work in progress. Remember, you can slice 80 times, but you know, 20 of those shots are gonna be going straight and you're gonna feel good, really good about those 20 and forget about the 80 slices you had. Just remember that. That's right. I just, if I hit one good shot, I'm hooked on the game again. So it's okay. I'm, I'm all right with that. That's my definition of success when it comes to golf. <laughs> I was going to build off what you said too. And I think it was lesson number eight. He talks about expect your future goals to change. And I, you were talking about goals, but then, you know, as a lieutenant, I don't know, we did probably ask those questions like, hey, what do I need to do to make lieutenant colonel and colonel and command? But as we change, I mean, not only are we changing, but the Air Force and the DHA is changing too. So you need to be aware that your future goals are probably going to change. And, and it's not a bad thing that your future goals change because you're adapting to the climate and the environment and the year, you know, COVID huge, crazy change to a lot of different stuff. You have to adapt to where you are on your horizon. And one of the things he's to try to extend your horizon, don't have such a short time to look at what you did and what you didn't do and go, I'm a failure or a success. You know, you have to be able to extend that horizon. And when you do, then you're going down your career or your financial goals, you know, your financial goals are probably going to change down the line. And you just should adapt and change as you change because your situation is going to change too. If you're not single in, tw- in your twenties anymore, you now have, I have a kid now and I'm starting 524. So now that's where my money's going. So, you know, things are going to change as you go down the years. I think that lesson is we're hearing a lot of that right now with like, if it's going to fail, let's fail at it and move on. Let's focus on sunk cost uh, associated with, you know, the 2020 strategic plan or the 2019 strategic plan. It's like, well, but, you know, in 2023, we were supposed to be here. Hey, you know, anything that was pre-pandemic really apply anymore. Yeah. Just completely throw it out. It's yeah. like uh, from an IT perspective, any kind of policy or decision that was made before the MedCoy as far as like network management went, it's like, all right, that's a great history project, but none of that is binding any longer. We're in a completely new environment. So I, I, I think culturally within our organization, we're starting to adopt that a little bit more, which which is a really, really a positive outlook, I would say. So I'll bring up another point uh, from the book. He talks about define the game that you're playing and make sure your actions are not being influenced by people playing a different game. You may think they're playing the same game, but they are playing a different game. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's uh, 
that's a deep lesson right there. There's a lot of wisdom in that. I could probably just say like me personally, 100%, right? They say like comparison is the thief of joy, right? I hear that quite a bit. And I think maybe that's what they're driving at there is that, you know, to go back on, you know, some of what you guys were saying previously, like we we have our own goals, life changes, our goals will change over time. It's not a rigid target. It's more of a sliding scale. You know, it's not an on-off switch, right? Sometimes I think we look at, and not to, I think Greg, Greg, you touched on this point a little bit before about, you know, failure and being able to kind of make mistakes and benefit from risk earlier in your career. That sounded a lot like what was covered in range, which was episode nine. You know, I think a little bit of that might apply here as well, uh, especially when it comes to comparing yourself to somebody else. You know, your skills and abilities are not what theirs are. Your background, your access to, you know, like I said, risk and luck, right? It's it's just not the same. So why would you compare yourself to to that person when you know that you did not have the same, you know, skills, abilities, level of access, whether it was more or less than, than someone else did? But I think it's very, very easy for all of us to fall into that trap. It wouldn't financial lesson or financial truism that hits that topic that I think, Chris, you mentioned was our psychological fault that we discount how much luck plays into events of what happens. And and it's something that I've actually been thinking a fair amount about when it comes to our junior officers or new accessions, particularly, right, is there's very little that individual can do to influence, you know, being in the right first job. You know, some of those are very much luck driven or or they're driven by factors completely outside of your control. So to to you it it, it looks like luck of the draw, right? And you and I, Chris, have talked uh, a bit because we both have deputy flight commanders right now about you know, just how different an environment is it is for a second lieutenant to come into a large facility as a deputy flight commander versus a new lieutenant who shows up at Altus, you know, who might be a triple headed flight commander as a second lieutenant. You what know, are deputies? Those two people. You don't have deputies? What is that? <laughs> I have two. <laughs> I didn't know he didn't <laughs> I didn't know he didn't know. <laughs> Sorry. What we're, the we weren't trying heck? to break the news to you here. I don't come on. <laughs> okay, I'm it's just like, in a bad we're spot. We're finally now. not I'm, dual hatted. This is this is the slow point. It's not the end game. It's fine. Just do the best in the job that you currently have. I hate you so much. <laughs> you really hit him with that too. Wow. This is great. It's good content. Let's explore that a little but more. The um, you know. The, those two, those two officers, those two second lieutenants, though, are going to have vastly different first couple of years to their careers. Just like you know, not not looking at the size of the facility, but you know, it's luck of the draw when it comes to your direct supervisor, right? There are strong supervisors, there are non-strong supervisors, and there are ones where just the supervisor and the raider and the ratee, you know, just don't see on the same wavelength and so there's conflict there not because anyone's bad or good they just have different viewpoints and they're you know it's difficult to reconcile well full disclosure Uh, i have apologized on several occasions for i was like man you you got the short end of the stick for me as your first supervisor (laughs) look at no 
Oh, they, we don't have video yet, so that'll remain a mystery to the to the listeners. <laughs> Just setting you up for that next job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll see what we'll see what it is. <laughs> no, but I think you're uh, sorry to try to be a little more focused on the conversation. Yes, I think you're absolutely right, Greg. Very much luck of the draw, especially very early on in the career. Is we're just kind of at the at the whim or the mercy of you know AFPC as well as maybe the the senior MSCs in a facility that just kind of move you around and, and they want to do what's best for you. And I think they do a good job of taking into consideration some of your own wants and desires. But uh, there is a certain degree of you know what is available for you at that point in time based on wherever you are assigned for your first assignment. Yeah, I'll give a personal example. So. Like I'm going up for an H program right now and I don't know whether I'm going to get it or not. And there's going to be a, a element of luck and risk uh, if I'm with the right people and I make the cut great. If I'm with the wrong group of people, as in a lot of people that are better than me, then it's going to be unlucky of me and I probably won't get picked up. But then I'm already ready to adapt and change my goals where I need to based on whether I get that opportunity or not. If I get it, then I'm going to try to go this way. And again, future goals will change. But if I don't get it, then I'm going to have to look in this direction. So, by the way, between you two and your deputies, you have more MSCs in the entire Altus clinic. So, congratulations. That's how I felt when I went to the systems orientation a couple of weeks ago. And the bases uh, of the individuals that I was there with, it was you know Columbus and Los Angeles and Maxwell and a couple of other small places. and you know, they're talking about their system shop is three people, four people. Oh, hey, Major Taylor, how many people in your system shop? And I'm like, really quietly, I'm like, 29. <laughs> oh, you use, I wish I had your man, that manpower. They're gainfully employed for the record for any DHAJ6 that are people that are listening to this uh, right now. Uh, every FTE is fully employed, I assure you. Yeah, you're leaving out a very important aspect of why you have 29 people and they only have, you know, 10 maybe. I don't know what the how many that some of those facilities Ten? have. I can imagine it's a whole lot. Maybe like three. Ten. <laughs> well, certainly the smaller facilities. I think I had three when I was at Laughlin. Yeah. My, myself included. So what, two and a half, really? All right. I mean, you probably have yeah. twice as many end users as all of those facilities, not maybe three times as many. It's true. I mean, a lot of the manpower calculations are based off that. Plus the amount of deployments that come through tier one facilities. We've got at least one, sometimes two people out the door every rotation, you know, which isn't the same for a lot of the smaller places. Anyway, I did, I did feel a little bit, not greedy, but you know, like the spoils of, of the riches, you know, it's like, oh, uh, Taylor, do you, do you deal with this problem? It's like, oh, no, my deputy really works on that one. I don't really touch that, you know, but you know, yeah, that's how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. Or you're like, you know, I'll have other CIOs that'll reach out and be like, hey, what are you doing about this? And I'm like, you know, I'm going to be honest. I'm not really sure. I have a guy that is handling that. They're like, you have a guy, like one person dedicated to this thing. I'm like, uh, well, yeah, sorry. <laughs> My bad. Can we, move, can we move on? This would be great. Can we? Can we? Can we move on? <laughs> For the record, okay, Kiso so. has forty people in their IT shop, all gainfully employed. For DHAJ six, in case you're listening. 
overly employed, I guess, right? We need more. Sorry. Ooh, I am asking for more people too. I don't know. We should talk offline about that. A hundred percent. All right. So back to the book, Manoj. We talked about this book. I heard from Chris. He gave it five out of five stars. Does psychology of money earn a space on your bookshelf? Yes. Yes. The fact that it kept me entertained and it kept me going. Because, you know, if we're going to talk about different goals, like for me, I, as the listeners probably know by now, I am not a big reader. So I get kind of bored and kind of tired reading sometimes. And I that's why I read so slow. And that's why I don't read books, I guess. But this one, it had me continuing reading and very eager to get to the next chapter to see what else he had to talk about. So yes, absolutely on my bookshelf. Hey, for you, Chris, five out of five stars makes it on the bookshelf. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's 100% on the bookshelf. I think it's a must read yeah, for all, all MSCs. I'm with you. I think it's universality is probably the most appealing you know, you don't have to know a lot about finance. You don't have to know a lot about human behavior. You don't have to know a lot about anything. You, I mean, you do have to know how to read. That is a prerequisite for reading the book. But <laughs> yeah, true. Well, I guess, I guess if you li- if you listen to it, you don't have to know how to read. Oh, so there you go. To, right, you have to know how to hear. Anyway, I don't know. I don't know where that was going, but it, it does make it onto my bookshelf uh, for that reason. I want to talk about one other thing really fast. So do you guys listen in on the post H per post DT webinar? Yes. I did. did you catch the feedback from, I think it was Colonel Richter that was talking about the OPBs and, you know, their review of OPBs. I think it was, he specifically mentioned the last statement. Yeah. I was surprised how starkly he put it where it was pretty much like, we don't care about anything up top. It's the higher level reviewer block, the strat and the comment in the higher level reviewer block is all that matters. I was kind of surprised by that. You guys as well, or, or is that kind of how you saw it as well? Surprised maybe a little bit, but not so much because I mean, you hear that these board members have like two or three minutes to review everything of one person. So of course they're going to just find the, what they believe is the strongest part of a record of an OPB and that must be the last line. I know what I was told back in the day, it's those two push lines of the end, the last line of those two boxes at our previous OPRs. Now, I guess that doesn't really exist. So maybe it's just that last line. That's where we need to focus. I, if that's what they're focusing on, then I kind of wish I knew that beforehand, before my OPB did go up, because I did have my first and recent OPB in my record to review. So I hope it was good enough. But if I had known that information ahead of time, I, I definitely would have made sure it was the strongest it possibly could be. But uh, it's too late now to see what happens. I don't want to say that I was surprised. I think maybe the intent was to just reiterate the emphasis of or the importance of that last line in the event that maybe board members are not able to review all of it. Again, I've never been on a board, so I'm just kind of picking and interpreting what I hear, but it seems to me like they have so many records and so few time to make these decisions that they're just jumping to that one part, right? Like look for strat and then go to the bottom part, see what's in there. And then move on. And then if they're going to, I guess, maybe in the event that they have split decisions, that's where they maybe start to decide and maybe pick through the the meat of, of the OPB. 
Uh, but I can't really say that I'm surprised. It's it's a little frustrating to hear that though, if I'm being if I'm being honest, because of how much time and effort and emphasis we put on the whole OPB. And not to say that it doesn't warrant that level of focus. It's just you always expect that, you know, you think that when your stuff goes up for a board, that it's getting a full and just review. It's there's a lot of consideration being put into it. Uh, but we know in reality, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with what the what the colonel had said, because I think you know the reality is they just don't have the time. They have to work very quickly and make these very difficult decisions in a very quick time frame. Well, I guess what surprised me was how candid they were about it. I know Colonel Richter. I worked with him in the past, so that wasn't surprising coming from him because I feel like if he has an opinion, he's not shy about about sharing it, you know, and he'll. He'll put it out there and in a diplomatic way, but he's not. I appreciate that level of candor. Yeah. I mean, in all honesty, yeah. like I think it's great to hear that. It's it's good to know that, and if because if that's the reality of what's happening, I think that that's we we all ought to to know that. Yeah, but like you, I think you know we we put a lot of work into making sure that what's in the four major graded area blocks, you know, is quality content. And I hope that it isn't entirely dismissed, you know, that effort, because otherwise, why even have it? Why aren't our OPBs just like the PRF and just two lines summarize the, you know, your feeling on this officer in over the course of the last year and then call it good. Unsolicited uh, book recommendation would be thanks for the feedback, which is a good one. Yeah, if I could summarize in one sentence is feedback is a continuous process, not a annual review. Anyway, so that's a good book. Time for Unpopular Opinion. I'm, I'm excited. I'm very excited for the Unpopular Opinion tonight. I'm proud to be the one to share this Unpopular Opinion with everybody today. So my Unpopular Opinion is that being likable at work is more important than hard work or being particularly good at your job. Okay. Wait, I guess so what I... Sorry, everyone just started talking at the same time. <laughs> That's my fault. Go ahead. Well, no, I was gonna just—I was just gonna clarify real quick. Is it you said it was better than doing hard work? So it's nothing to do with promoting. Well, I, they all tie together, I think. You know, but well, I was gonna. Well, I think my, that yeah, one of my counters was gonna be like, well, the people who make our decisions for promoting, I don't think they're all MSCs or even medical, right? So how do they even know us to be likable or not? Right, but the likability translates into the positions that you hold and oh, the strats see, that you I get see. and the awards okay. that you win. I have a lot to say about this topic. Let me expand a little bit. Okay. I'll give you an example. When you are grading packages for a quarterly award, I think one of the things that we acknowledge going into the board, right, is you have different AFSCs grading other AFSCs, is that a lot of the job performance is kind of a wash, right? Where when, you know, you have a, a, a 4T lab tech and a 4A front desk clerk and a 4Charlie mental health technician, and they're, you know, they're all co- going up for airmen of the quarter or something like that. And, you know, a lot of their job performance, the doing high quality work, it's like, it's assumed that their job performance is going to be good. Otherwise they wouldn't have been nominated for the award. And so you're looking for things above and beyond those criteria that will separate people, right? I think it's assumed that you're going to have good job performance. And so going with that, 
I think it's assumed that as long as you're trying, you know, you're given a lot of benefit of the doubt, you get a lot of help along the way in your job performance. But if if you can't work well with others or people don't like to talk to you or you avoid conversation and you avoid discussion and, and inserting your opinion in a helpful way into discussions, you know, that's going to do a lot more to harm your career than failing at a project or not meeting a goal is going to. I don't necessarily disagree with what you're saying, but I I don't know that I fully agree with it though either. I agree that reputation is extremely important and interpersonal skills are extremely important and valuable. However, I don't necessarily see those as showstoppers for overall long-term success in your career because if if I say, you know, think of a person that you've worked for or with that was just unbearable, I think we can all, so, you know, you may immediately have somebody that comes to mind, but it still happens. And maybe it's the exception and not the rule, but it still happens that people who are difficult to work with find their way to upper levels of the organization. Yeah, I'm going to have to agree there because we do know a few people that, let's just say in our terms, are, are not great seeds, but yet they're given the opportunities because they were good at their job. And that's the, I think maybe some of the commanders I've had try to take that bias out and go, okay, what have they done in their job? And are they performing at a top level? Yes. Okay. We're giving them that opportunity because they've done a good job. I haven't seen so much. Oh, they're just really nice. And let's put them into, I don't know, the exec position or wing exec position. It's not because they're nice. It's because they're doing a good job. Now, are their communication skills and the way they mentor and the way they lead great? Probably not, which casts some correlation into being a likable person. But I have seen too often that even no matter how likable or not likable you are, you are still given a lot of opportunities that I feel like, like why did they put them there? That was not the right spot. How, did, how are they deserving? But it must be because something in their record said they were really good or something they actually did do in a previous job got put into the record to say they were really good at this job. I don't disagree with you. I think though the people that are hardworking but unlikable, there's a definite ceiling in where they're going to go. And at least me personally, some of the people that I know that might fit that category or come to mind are, I mean, they're in positions now where I don't think that there's a great and clear path for advancement for them. Now, there are lots of other factors going on in the medical service corps and, you know, in the Air Force in general and DHA and things like that, which complicate that. It's not just a, a black and white decision when it comes to do we retain unlikable individuals or do we, we show them the door? However, I think the ones that I think it's those, it's those soft skills that will get you technical competence while you're a technician is valuable but you know the higher up in you know management and administrative world you go the less important that is and the more important your ability to communicate is and a lot of that comes down to whether or not people actually like communicating with you you know this is a really great question and a pretty philosophical one if you ask me i mean because i think we could probably take this discussion in a, in a lot of directions and Really, it's like, what is the measure that you then determine that somebody is not likable? 
right? And who gets to say that that person is not likable, right? And I don't mean, I'm just thinking like, you know, tying it into like the psychology of money piece, right? Trying to just, because I, th- I think there's a little, they're a little relatable here. It seems like one of the like big, I think a narrative that you hear often though, is like when, when somebody, at least on the officer side, they get into a position and then maybe they're not doing quite as well as maybe they once were, they have a lot of stratifications, like Manoj saying, like their, their record of performance is very strong. Nobody wants to be the one then to quote unquote, ruin that person's career by like downgrading them. Right. So maybe this is more than just like, not so much a likable, unlikable thing, but maybe a, like how we're delivering feedback or, you know, managing the current system that we've developed on our own. Right. And I, I don't know, like I said, it's very philosophical. It's really kind of hard to to pinpoint some of that. Yeah. I don't know if any of that made sense, but. It, it made sense to me. And I agree. I think that there's, it's a very complicated system full of many small influences, a healthy amount of luck, like we talked about earlier, uh, being, you know, in the right place at the right time with the right senior rater and things like that, you know, but the likability though counts for a lot more than the way that we publicly discuss it. It is said in our career field that your reputation is gold. It's everything. I think there is a lot of truth to that though, too. I think as an MSC, your reputation is very valuable and should be guarded at all cost. Your reputation is more than just likability. I would say also that hard work and that competence comes into it as well, because it's, you know, you've delivered results consistently over time, plays into that. And yeah, I I agree with you though. They're definitely related. And, you know, when I think about leaders and peers that I've worked with and the ones that I think that had the strongest positive influence, they were all people that I liked. I genuinely liked them as a person. I didn't think about, oh, this person's a real jerk, but I learned a lot from them because they're really good at their job. I learned how not to be a jerk. It's like, just don't do what they did. You know, you're the smartest comptroller ever to grace an MTF, but you put people down in front of other people and, you know, shame others because they don't know as much as you do about GFIBs or some stupid financial system. And you know, like my key takeaway out of that isn't your mastery of governmental finance. It's something else. Why is RMO getting attacked right now? What the heck? (laughs) There's a few personalities in that subset of the career field that just... This isn't fair anymore. We've got two IT folks now. We gotta... I can't can't pick up my current community. That's just... (laughs) That's just... We're we're out of balance right now. I attacked my own community, I would be sawing the limb that I'm standing on in the tree, you know? All right. So given the discussion and the feedback here that this unpopular opinion is more complicated than I initially put it out. So maybe, <laughs> maybe it's not quite as valid of an opinion just on the face of it and needs to be, uh, needs to be broken down into a more nuanced conversation in order for it to really resonate is I think what I got coming out of this discussion. So thank you both for that and keeping me honest. I will say this. If we just take the statement at face value without getting too philosophical about it, I would not disagree with you. I think I would agree. I think I would lean more towards the fact that you're right. Likeability is more important. I think I have to say the same. I thought I was the opposite direction, but after all the discussion, 
you got me leaning the other way. Right. Well, that's been unpopular opinion. And thank you for coming along with us on that philosophical journey. And let's see, next up for for us here on the podcast is, you know, we're all getting together later this week, celebrating Chris's promotion. He's given me the honor of being the presiding official for that. And Minoj is our musical entertainment. Have you learned how to play our theme music on the viola? I I was just going to ask. Oh, you know what? Give me, give me a few days. Let, Let me see. Let me see if I can. Yeah. Well done. Well, thank you both for making the trip down. I really appreciate it. It's really quite special to be able to say that we not only we do this together, but we can do things like this in our in the career field as well. So I I really really appreciate it. So thanks guys. I'm looking forward to seeing you guys, and I'm looking even more forward to playing a, a round of golf. So taking it back to where it all started. Okay, so I wanted to ask you. I'm I'm really looking forward to the round of golf as well. Do we want to put a small wager on the golf game, which would be winner? picks the next book we read i like it i think yeah we should have something well also how are we going to measure our scores i don't think any of us have an official handicap so we're just going to go just straight just shot for shot yeah (laughs) i'm screwed (laughs) Uh, we could do like match play you know just or skins you know we're taking taking holes yeah, and I have home I have home home course advantage. <laughs> I'm willing to bet that doesn't doesn't play to as much of an advantage as, as, your, as your opening I, will. I will guarantee that that is absolutely correct. Me and Greg will Chris not know where class, the buckers are. Chris foot classic overthinker. Yeah, he'll be like 220 yards up to the right. There's a bunker. I need to I need to air it to the left a little bit. And then, you know, slice like, right into it goes, <laughs> oh man, it's going to be horrendous. I can't wait. All right. So listeners, you know, stay tuned. We're not going to announce the next book that we're reading right now. We'll put it on our Facebook page after we complete our round and uh, show you the scores and see what, what else we can come up with for the, the winner and the loser of the upcoming C41A podcast tournament. From all of us here to all of you out there, have a great night. C41A is an independent company and produced by C41A Media. Digital media support and creative director, Manoj Rima. Marketing and IT, Christopher Foote. And director and outreach, Greg Taylor.